Welcome once again to Searching the Scriptures radio broadcast. I'm Pastor Travis Alltop, and you're listening to a ministry of Bluegrass Pike Baptist Church from right here in Danville, Kentucky. We appreciate you tuning in and trust and pray that you're getting some help from these Bible studies we conduct here on the Searching the Scriptures radio program. Our desire is to show you the Word of God and allow you to look it up and see the Word of God for yourself. There's power in the Word of God. The Bible says that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Do you want to be full of faith and have your faith increased? Then study and know what the Bible has to say. There's power in this blessed old book. And so we want to expound it as we have time on these programs. This week, I would ask you to turn to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, and let's look at the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and talk about a subject that is often debated and a subject that is one that you need to have down as a born-again Christian. If you are saved by the good grace of God and you know that you've passed from death to life, it's crucial to know for how long your everlasting life is. And of course, that's kind of almost an oxymoron to say, how long is everlasting life? Well, if you possess everlasting life, then it's everlasting. But you know, a lot of Christians never get over that hump. I talk to many Christians who are somewhat confused on the doctrine of eternal security. Now, many carnal Christians in the world will call it or refer to it as the doctrine of, quote, once saved, always saved. Well, I do not find that phrase in my Bible, but I do find the phrase everlasting life. And with the help of the Lord, I would like to show you some things today that you can think about, that you can study, that should clear up your mind on this matter known as the security of the born-again believer. I want you to look with me in John chapter 10. Let's begin our study today in the 10th chapter of the Gospel of John, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, beginning in verse 27. He says these words, John 10, 27, Jesus speaking. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Now, friends, that is a loaded passage of Scripture right there. And if that doesn't teach the security of the believer, I don't know what does. But now, it goes deeper than this. But I want you to notice something in verse 27. When Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, he then says this, and I know them. A man who challenged me on the doctrine of eternal security, and he did it very graciously. He was just, uh, I think he was truly searching for some answers. Uh, he had a wife that did not believe in the doctrine of eternal security. You say, why didn't they believe in it? Well, <clears throat> they told me it was because they want, they used to, they said, but they began to watch a man in their church who uh, was living a, a, almost a double life. He was one man at church. He was another man to his wife and kids at home. And they had uh, even some experiences with this man who was in a position of leadership in their church. And they were troubled about his conduct, his lack of character, and his abusive language to his wife. And uh, they said, this man, when you talk to him about repentance and about the Bible, they said uh, he seemed not to be afraid. He did not seem to be afraid of God. He didn't seem to be afraid that he was in sin. And therefore, their conclusion was eternal security couldn't be true because it gave this man a false hope or a false conclusion of where he stood with God. Well, my friend, let me just begin this study by telling you, you should never, never, never conclude your theology or 
uh, come to a conclusion about doctrine based on observing humanity. That is not where you learn the Bible. Now, you get your doctrine from the Word of God, and true doctrine will teach you much about humanity and human nature. But it is a great mistake to base your belief or lack of belief on eternal security based on looking at some human example who may or may not have been a true child of God. See, when I'm preaching and teaching today on eternal security, I'm not talking about somebody who had an emotional experience in a church and then went out and smoked dope. No, I'm talking to people who have come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I want to talk about their security. I want to talk about the security of those who have truly been saved. As one preacher at our church who was visiting with our, at our church one time said, he goes, yeah, I believe in once saved, always saved. But he goes, let me just say this. I'm heavy on the once saved because there are many people who sling this doctrine around and talk about this doctrine who have never actually passed from death to life. These people that uh, were challenging me on the doctrine went on to say, how do you explain passages like Matthew 7? where someone is standing at the judgment and saying, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Have we not cast out devils in thy name? And have we not done many wonderful works in thy name? And the man says, what did Jesus say? He, he, threw, he cast them out. They went to hell. He said, uh, depart from me, ye that work iniqu iniquity. And I pointed out that Jesus also says in that passage, right after he says, depart from me, ye that work iniquity, what does he say next? He says in Matthew seven twenty two. The Lord Jesus tells these people who are religious, they were full of religious works and they did them even in Jesus' name, but he looks at them and he says these words, I never knew you. Notice he did not say that he knew them once and now no longer knew them. No, these are not people who lost anything. These are people who hung around Christians and hung around the church and knew the lingo. They knew Jesus Christ's title was Lord, and they called him by his proper title. They did many things. They were animated to action because of Jesus Christ. But you know what they had never done? They had never trusted his blood atonement to wash them clean of their sin. They had obviously never humbled themselves and received him by faith. That Bible still says, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. You see, the Lord's sheep are those who have humbled themselves and know him in the pardon and forgiveness of sins and have believed upon him and trusted what he did for them at Calvary and the fact that he rose again from the dead. Those are the sheep. Those are the people who have trusted him and received eternal life as a gift. Notice in our text, he says, I give unto them eternal life. They did not earn it. I did not earn it. And you will never earn it. It is given as a gift. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he says, my sheep hear my voice. And he says, and I know them. Those people in Matthew chapter 7, whatever they were, they were religious, but they weren't his true sheep. Why? Because Jesus Christ said, I never knew you. And so those passages, that particular passage, proves nothing when it comes to the doctrine of the falling away of doctrine. Uh, and it proves nothing to watch people's actions or to watch human nature and point out to me somebody who once said they were a Christian and now they're a wife beater and a drunk. I'm not interested in basing my theology off hypothetical situations or people that you've met in your life. We've got to get our doctrine, our theology straight from the Word of God. 
And so turn with me, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 1, and let me show you why I believe the doctrine of eternal security, that once a man has truly and sincerely been born again by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, that man will never perish. His sins have been paid for. He's been washed in the blood. He has a home in heaven. He's been sealed with the Spirit, and God will keep that man until the day of judgment. Now, in 1 Peter chapter 1, look with me, if you will, in verse 3. The Bible says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So verse 3 of 1 Peter chapter 1 is speaking to born-again believers. These are people who have been begotten again. That's a new birth. What what was their uh, begetting? They were begotten to a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Of course, that's the gospel that has begotten them because the gospel is how that Christ died for our sins and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day. Have you believed that gospel? Have you trusted that to present you faultless before the throne one day? Then this verse, this promise is written to you. For those of us who've been begotten again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, we've been begotten to a lively hope, and verse 4 says, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and it fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. We've got a place reserved there. And it says, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God. So number one, I believe in the security of the born-again believer because of the power of God to keep his children. It says that we're kept not by our performance, but by the power of God. So who is keeping you if you're saved? Why, it's the same one that keeps the moon in the sky. It's the same one that turns the world. It's the same one that keeps the sun burning and heating the earth. It's the same one that wrote this book and preserved it. It's the same one that, amen, put breath into your body and brought you into this world through a natural birth and then brought you into his world, his spiritual world, through a new birth. That same God will keep you by his power. That's what it says. Look at it, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. To those of us who've been born again, we are the ones who, quote, are kept by the power of God. Now, the argument against what the world calls once saved, always saved, often runs this way. Well, preacher, I just believe that if a man is uh, saved forever and and he can't ever lose it, then why, he'd go out and live any way he'd want to. He'd live loose and he would he would do whatever he wanted to do. And the answer I give to that is, amen, I'm saved, once saved, been once saved, and I'm going to be always saved. I have been kept by the power of God, and I do live any way I want to. I'm living for God. That's how I want to live. But let's talk about this thing. Let me give you an illustration that might help you. The power of God keeps a man, and that is a very motivating thing. Uh, Contrary to popular religious belief, it is not an invitation to live a wicked life or a double life, but rather it is a, a promise and an assurance that helps us to serve the Lord without fear. Now, let me give you an illustration. Many, many years ago in the 1920s and early 30s, mid 30s, the architect for the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco had come up with plans to bridge the land gap there over San Francisco, or bridge the two uh, land masses over the San Francisco Bay. And they began building the Golden Gate Bridge in the late 1920s, the early 1930s. 
And as they built that, um, and men were working high on those uh, places and those steel girders and all that up there on the Golden Gate Bridge, you know how there's two uh, high points there that the cables run up to. Uh, there were many men falling from the top of that, and they would fall into the San Francisco Bay far below and then die in those icy, swirling waters of the uh, very volatile San Francisco Bay, the currents going in and out. And so there were 23 men that died. Over 20 men fell from the beams and scaffolding to their death in that swirling water in the San Francisco Bay below. So finally, I believe it was 1937, uh, they decided, the architect designed a safety net that would go under the full length of the bridge so that if a man slipped off the scaffolding or off the, the beams on the bridge as he was working, he would fall, but he would not fall to his death. He would be caught by the safety net. And they were really reluctant to do that because it cost $100,000 to build that safety net. They didn't want to spend the extra money. They thought we're already getting a little behind. It's going to put us more behind. But two things happened after the safety net was put in place. Once the men realized that even if they slipped, they would not perish, here's the two things that happened. Number one, less men slipped and fell. In fact, over the course of the rest of the building of the bridge, only 10 men slipped off that bridge and fell, and all 10 of them were caught by the safety net and were kept safe by that net and they did not perish, even though they slipped. But the second thing that was amazing was that the production time, they began to make great uh, great progress, and the building of the bridge, the progress of the building, increased 25%. So the work was better and quicker. And number two, when men did slip, less men slipped, but when they did, they did not perish. And my friend, when God has set this thing up in his great wisdom and love for sinners, when sinners get saved, friend, that salvation is not temporal, but eternal. And it takes the curse of the law off of us. It takes the pressure off of us. And it causes us to love God. Why? Because he first loved us. And therefore, we can turn to him and have a relationship with him. And it'll cause us, amen, to get more done for the glory of God. I'm going to tell you something. If you're under the impression that you're saved, but you could lose it and you might slip and you might fall and perish after all, I'm going to tell you that will not encourage you to live a godly life. That will only discourage you, depress you, or turn you into a self-righteous hypocrite. You say, well, why would you say that? Because I had a lady uh, in our church who's been a fine member of our church for over 10 years, and she came from a Pentecostal background, and was she was saved just like anybody else gets saved by repentance and faith toward Jesus Christ. And she came to this church very, very skeptical of me and of the doctrine of eternal security because she had sat under the false doctrine, the falling away doctrine, for so long. And after she sat for six to nine months, she kept going home. She said, I'm going to bring my Bible. She told me this after the fact. But she said, I'm going to bring my Bible. And when he starts on that, I'm going to examine this. And then I'm going to catch him uh, twisting the scriptures. Well, as I would give the Bible out, she would go home unbeknownst to me and she would look it up and pray about it. So finally she came to see me one day and she was relieved and overjoyed that God had shown her the doctrine of eternal security to be a true New Testament doctrine that you can rejoice in. And she told me this. She said she'd give me her testimony of how she had trusted Jesus Christ. And then she said that through the years sitting under the fall away doctrine, 
She said, there was times when I felt as though I was living the life that was pleasing to God that would keep me saved. And she said, I realize now that I was full of self-righteousness when I felt that way. She goes, and then I would find myself uh, having slipped from the standard that I had set up for myself and I would fall into deep uh, depression and discouragement and almost despair. And she said, finally, the reason I got out of church 20 years ago is I finally said one day, I can't live this life. I'll never be able to live this life. It's not for me. And so if I'm going to go to hell, why keep going to church? Now, friend, that is the end result of a misunderstanding of the doctrine of eternal security. When someone believes that they've been saved, but tomorrow they better hang on because they might slip. Friend, that doesn't bring rejoicing and peace and assurance. That brings more bondage. And I'm going to tell you, Jesus Christ does not put us into bondage, but rather he sets us free. He gives us eternal life and gives us now liberty to live and, uh, for him and walk with him in this life. Listen, it's the power of God that keeps us and it gives us great peace of mind. Amen and amen. I'll tell you another reason I believe in the eternal security of the born again child of God is not only because of the power of God to keep, but because of the perfect provision that has been made for sinners like me and you. You say, what do you mean? I mean this in Hebrews chapter 10 in verse 11. The Bible says these words, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, which of course the book of Hebrews is trying to convince the uh, Jew who is hanging, cleaving to the law. They're trying, this writer is trying to show the Hebrew people that Jesus Christ is better than the law. He's better in every aspect. And so here in Hebrews 10, verse 11, we read these words. He says, every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So the Old Testament setup, the Old Testament sacrifices were made each year. And those things, the Bible says, could never take away sins. But now verse 12, it speaks of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. And so we see the perfect provision that God has made. Christ Jesus is not going to die for sins again. Jesus Christ died once, and therefore we are saved once. We're born again one time. You don't get saved and lose it and get it back and give it away and get it back again. Why, well, that's not salvation. That's just dead religion. Listen, Jesus Christ made one sacrifice and he sat down at the right hand of God. The Old Testament priest could not sit down. In fact, verse 11 said that they were standing daily because the work was never done. But never forget what John the Baptist announced about Jesus Christ when he saw him come into the river Jordan. He said, behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. When I came to Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus took my sins away. He has paid for my sins. My debt is gone. My debt has been satisfied. The wrath of God has been appeased and the law has been upheld and satisfied. The demands of a holy law and the demands of a holy God have been met. Therefore, I am free. And that sacrifice, that blood is eternal and it pleads for me even today. You know what God did for me? He set it up when I trusted Christ. He gave me righteousness. He imputed it to my account. The Bible speaks 
of imputation. It speaks of righteousness that is imputed. You say, what does that mean? It means to credit your account. It means to charge your account with righteousness. He charged Jesus Christ with my sins. And he put my sins upon Jesus Christ. Why the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that God hath made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin. So that we, us believers, might be made the righteousness of God in him. You see, God made Jesus Christ to be sin in my place. He took my sins and punished them in the person and in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the flip side of that coin is that when I believed upon the Lord Jesus and received him by faith as my own Savior, God charged my account with perfect righteousness. He imputed that to me. Oh, it's a glorious thing. For those of you who have preachers that still preach that you might lose it if you don't hang on and endure unto the end, I would ask you to ask them to teach on the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Well, you say, where can I read about that in the Bible? That sounds too good to be true. Well, friend, it's not too good to be true. It's the Word of God, and it's found in Romans chapter 4. The Bible says in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, To him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. Did you see that? Did you hear that? Imputeth, God's going to impute righteousness to someone without works? Yes. Who is it? It's the one that believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly. Have you believed on Jesus Christ with all your heart? Have you put your hope and your trust in him, knowing that he is able to save and to keep? Well, then, friend, you're the one that God has given righteousness to. He goes on to say, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. He imputed my sin to his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross. And when I came to Calvary in humble repentance and trusted his son, God imputed righteousness to me. It's the perfect provision because Jesus Christ was the only sinless, spotless man that ever lived. The Bible describes him as holy and harmless and undefiled, separate from sinners. And he made himself sin for me that I might be made the righteousness of God in him. Thank God for this glorious doctrine in the Bible. And so we see that we're kept by the power of God we see that we've been given a perfect provision from God. But let me point out something else. If you would, turn in your Bible to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. And notice these truths. We're doing a study today on the doctrine of eternal security. One that is often rejected, misunderstood, misrepresented, or out and out made fun of and mocked. But my friend, it's nothing to mock. It's something to rejoice in. It's something that's a blessing. God set it up this way, and I'm just reporting to you what he says to those who have trusted his son as their own Lord and Savior. Now, in Philippians chapter 1, the Bible says this. Paul is writing, if you'll notice in verse 1 of Philippians chapter 1, he says, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Did you see that? Saints in Christ Jesus. These are saved people. These are real Christians that they're writing to that are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Now, what does he have to say to these saints in Christ Jesus? Verse 6, he says, Being confident of this very thing, 
that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now listen, when you got saved, it was God that began a good work in you. The day you trusted and believed upon Jesus Christ, God began a work in your heart. And what does it say? God is going to perform this good work until when? Until the day of Jesus Christ. He performs a miracle known as the new birth within us when we're saved. And the miracle will go with us to the end of our life and safely carry us into our home in heaven. You say, well, what's the purpose of God? Uh, well, or what's the, what's the great good work that he's performing? Well, let me show you. Romans chapter 8 tells us what this good work is. And it tells us how he's going to perform it. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. It says these words. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Now, his purpose is going to be performed in us. It says he will perf- the good work he started in us, that's God's purpose. And it says he will perform it to the day of Jesus Christ. And right here we see that God has a purpose for those people. In verse 28, these are Christians. These are those in Christ, as we saw uh, in Philippians chapter 1. Well, what is the purpose? Well, verse 29 tells us, For whom, whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. So right there is a great truth that you need to get a hold of. God has a purpose that he is going to perform. He is going to finish it. God does not begin anything that he does not finish. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the author and, quote, finisher of our faith. And he that hath begun a good work in you, saint, will perform it. What's the good work? It's the purpose of God. What's the purpose of God? He has predestinated it that those that are in Christ will one day be conformed to the image of his Son. God's purpose in saving a sinner is to conform him to the perfect image of Jesus Christ. Who does he do this for? Those that he justified. And one day he's going to also glorify us. And I'm going to tell you something. This is a wonderful thing. You, we have a children's song that we often sing or we've heard sung. He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. And I'm going to tell you when God saved you, he started a good work in you. That good work is his purpose. That purpose will be performed. It's going to be performed in everybody until the day of Jesus Christ, everybody that's saved. And what is that uh, perfect work? What is that purpose? It is to make you just like Jesus Christ. Why would God do that? Because he said this about one man and one man only. When Jesus Christ was baptized in the river Jordan at the hands of John the Baptist, the heavens opened and the Father spake from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Well, my friend, he's not well pleased with me and you in our sinful condition. Even our good works are said to be uh, filthy rags. But my friend, when we humble ourselves and come empty-handed to the cross and call out to Jesus Christ to be our Savior and trust him for all that he did for us, then God begins a good work in us. And his purpose is to perform that work until we're safely home in heaven. And I'm going to tell you something. That work he's performing is a glorious one. Uh, If you like me now, where do you see me in heaven? One day I'm going to be conformed to the perfect image of Jesus Christ. 
Oh, I may struggle now. I may find faults, and I certainly do. As I read the Word of God and pray, God points out the weaknesses and the sinful habits I still have. But I'm telling you something, He is sanding on me. It's a process known as sanctification. And God will one day make me and conform me to the perfect image of His Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I've been predestinated to be that. That's a blessing. And you know, sanctification is the process by where we're made like unto Jesus Christ. Many of you sing that old hymn, Rock of Ages, Cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. It goes on to say, let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed, listen, be of sin the double cure, save from wrath, justification, and make me pure, sanctification. God is working on us Christians. He's working in us, and he has a purpose, and he will finish it, and he will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's all the time we have this week. We're going to pick this subject up again next week. In the meantime, keep checking it out. Check me on 1 Peter chapter 1. Check me on Romans 8, verses 28 through 30. And check me on Philippians 1, 6. Until next week, may the Lord bless you as you serve him.